from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, this is Pitt MedCast. I'm Janine Faust. And I'm Elaine Vitone. In this episode, we revisit and remix an old favorite from our archives, an August 2005 Pitt Med Magazine story titled, Among My Souvenirs, a Polio Scrapbook. I think now uh, the vaccine has been on the market for over five years. People are asking, is it absolutely safe? Does it really protect against polio? It strikes with its most frequent and devastating force against children. With an epidemic climbing to its peak, the hospital used the room for suspected cases of polio. As the heat set in, parents told their children to avoid crowds in the summer of 1954. No trips to the amusement park. No afternoons at the pool. Wash the fruit good, they said. It's polio season. By then, polio outbreaks had become far too common in the U.S., leaving thousands of children paralyzed or dead by the end of each summer. Newscasts and March of Dimes telethons in the 1940s and 50s brought images of children propped up with crutches, canes, or braces, or encased from the neck down in monstrous negative pressure ventilators known as iron lungs. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob March of Dimes Hope, telling all you generous Americans to send the president a dime for a birthday present so some kid can have a future. Polio is a foe of the nation, but we can win if we kick in. Help prevent polio crippling help by contributing to the 1953 fund appeal of the Sister Kenny Foundation. When letters and permission slips from Jonas Salk arrived in the mail during the school year, parents worried. They argued at the dinner table. This new vaccine, this clinical trial, was it safe enough for their children? The Sunday before testing began, nationally syndicated gossip columnist Walter Winchell reported that the Salk vaccine might actually kill them and fear tightened its grip. Perhaps it was the thought of another generation in this stranglehold that convinced parents to sign those permission slips. In 2005, for the 50th anniversary of the Salk vaccine, the University of Pittsburgh invited those who had participated in the clinical trials or wrestled with the disease to share their memories at a commemorative celebration. Hundreds responded. We share lines from a few of those letters here. They tell the story of how ordinary people helped win the struggle against one of the most crippling diseases in history. Even today, if I were to hear the ventilators, I would recognize the sound immediately. Diana Ney, Pittsburgh. In 1946, Diana Ney started her first job out of school as a nurse at Municipal Hospital in Oakland. She worked in the otherwise quiet night to the mechanized rhythms of ventilators. She could hear them going in patients' rooms all the way down at the nurse's station. Besides polio patients and their families, it was medical personnel who had the most intimate experiences with the disease and the fight against it. Nurses at Municipal were required to wear short sleeves, short hair, 
and short, unpolished nails. In this place where Renee's lifetime devotion to cleanliness began, she would encounter the occasional mouse near the autopsy room, which Salk's team used as an animal lab. Tiny, white-furred mounds scooted along the halls, dragging paralyzed hind limbs behind them. Nay learned to handle polio patients by their joints, mindful of the tender muscles of their bellies, and to watch patients closely through their acute phases. The quicker the progression of symptoms, the bleaker their prognosis. Patients arrived with fevers and stiff necks, their hamstring muscles tightening as the disease began to take its toll. Children cried for their families, and young adults who'd been in their prime just months before struggled for the strength to clench their fists in frustration. Some patients depended on the staff for everything, right down to scratching their noses. Nay and her team brought what they could of the outside world to those confined within the hospital walls, reading newspapers and playing Oklahoma and South Pacific records to pass the time. Some patients are as vivid to her now as they were 50 years ago. Patients like the school teacher who used to summon Nay down the hall over and over throughout the night shift in order to keep herself awake. The teacher feared that she would stop breathing if she fell asleep in bed. She'd only let herself sleep in the iron lung. And there was also the GI who survived a war only to fall a casualty of polio. A line from that soldier's favorite record still turns in Nay's mind. There's nothing left for me of days that used to be. I live in memory among my souvenirs. They took my little brother away somewhere, and I didn't know why. John Brown was six years old when the red and white quarantine sign was nailed to his front door in the summer of 1952. He still remembers crying on the front lawn of their Penn Hills home as his parents took his one-year-old brother Jimmy to Municipal Hospital. Two weeks later, they took John, too. For children who caught the dreaded disease in the 1950s, Paralysis was not the only negative effect of polio. Young victims also faced separation from their families and isolation in strange, sterilized environments. At first, John and his brother were not allowed to see each other. For months, they couldn't see their parents either, as clergy were the only visitors permitted in the wards. In a room full of other sick children, John felt all alone. Today, if you mention Mrs. Moore, the sweet lady who snuck in popsicles for the children, called them her precious babies, and told them that their parents loved them all very much, John's voice trembles. She is still the nearest thing to an angel I'll ever know, he says. One day, people dressed in white put John in a bathtub full of water so hot that it hurt. When they dried him off, they dressed him in flannel pajamas and moved him to a new room. They wheeled John's bed down the hall and parked him next to his brother. Baba, Baba, Jimmy said over and over. And the two stretched their arms out toward each other, reaching, reaching, reaching. They were just barely able to hold hands. Summer passed, fall came, and the boys remained together in that room. Through the window, they could see the massive wall of Pitt Stadium outside. 
On game days, they heard the bands play and could even see the blue and gold uniform football players pass on the sidewalk below. Years later, they learned that their father stood on that same sidewalk for hours looking up at their room. With dad on the street below, John in his bed, and Jimmy in his crib, they were a family again. I thought it was part of elementary school. I remember telling my friends that I liked school, except when they took blood from me. Evelyn Levine, Pittsburgh. During 1954, in designated schools across the country, children lined up in alphabetical order, rolled up their sleeves, and waited. They were all polio pioneers, elementary schoolers whose parents agreed to let them participate in the National Clinical Field Trial for Jonas Salk's new polio vaccine. Looking back, many trial participants are proud of their involvement in helping greenlight one of the most important medical advancements in history. But as kids, they weren't too happy about being poked with needles. It was hardest on the kids at the end of the alphabet. Fears mounted as they watched Salk's team administer vaccines and draw blood at the front of the line. The needles Sterilized in flames and used again and again, became dull and weak, sometimes breaking in the children's arms. Crying was contagious. Some trial participants still wince at the smell of rubbing alcohol. A man on the television announced the vaccine worked. Mom came over, held me tight, and wept. The battle had been won. That we had taken part made the victory that much sweeter. Mike Silverstein, Washington, D.C. The April 12, 1955 announcement of the Salk vaccine's success ended polio's reign of terror in the United States. Mass immunization campaigns were launched across the country. Make Columbus the best vaccinated city in America. Children, bring your parents, and parents, bring your Special children. vaccination stations are being set up all over town. Watch the news media for an announcement of the time and the place nearest you. We're in a neighborhood advertising this uh, polio vaccine station is set up up at Hershey's Grocery this afternoon. Yes. They'll be up there at 7 o'clock to give free polio shots to you and, and any members of your family. Polio cases each summer dwindled from the tens of thousands to less than 200 by 1961. When we started working on this episode, we hoped to catch up with the Pittsburghers from the story I wrote for PitMed in 2005. Unfortunately, we couldn't reach them, or in Diana Nay's case, she died just a few years ago. So we dove back into the hundreds of letters that people wrote back then and were taken with one in particular, written from the perspective of a little Catholic schoolgirl from the Carrick neighborhood of Pittsburgh. We tracked her down, and as it turns out, she works just a few blocks from our offices. In 2005, I was uh, designated as a polio pioneer, and I think I might put that on my tombstone. That's Sherry Miller-Brown. No relation to John Brown mentioned earlier, by the way. Sherry is a Pitt alumna and retired faculty member in the College of General Studies. She still teaches over in Posfer Hall. 
I worked at Pitt for, well, now it's over 50 years, but when I retired, I had worked for Pitt for 45 years, and I had, uh, be, I was the founder and the director until I retired of the McCarl Non-Traditional Student Success Center. Sherry is Pitt proud through and through, and quick to note that her connection to the university began in childhood when she participated in the polio vaccine trials. She says the devastating toll of the disease was a defining experience for her generation, and she worries about the fact that the terror she knew all too well as a kid has faded from our collective memory, putting people at risk for other dangerous diseases. Measles is surging throughout the world. The World Health Organization is reporting that cases have nearly quadrupled in the first few months of this year. Has refocused attention on parents who choose not to vaccinate their kids. I saw a picture not too long ago in a magazine of some people that were still in iron lungs, and it just it was it was amazing because it swept me back there, like the fear I felt, and and more so even than the kids, it was the fear that we felt from our families you know, our parents being so afraid of us having this happen to us. I can remember being in school um, and uh, several kids getting polio, and suddenly we had one person in our school who was in, who was put in an iron lung, and then we had several people in our school who had to wear the polio braces, who could no longer, who one day, one day they were fine, and it seemed like the next day they couldn't walk. One boy's polio followed him all the way through high school. Sherry still remembers him coming into school for the first time in his braces. This is the thing about all these decades gone by. Now, whole generations have grown up not having any idea what life was like before childhood vaccines. But for Sherry, polio had a face, and that face was children. They were these, like, high brown leather shoes. They look like boots. And the braces were on either side, metal braces on either side. They were scary. It was scary. And of course, no kid in their right mind ever wanted to have to wear a brace. The letters from Jonas Salk caused a real stir at St. Basil's. But Sherry's late mother, a PTO dynamo, reached out to the family doctor to learn more. He assured her it was safe and worth doing and urged her to talk to other parents, too, which she did. Some families couldn't be persuaded. There was another doc in town, an old-timer, who was spreading misinformation. He told those parents, don't dare do that. You don't know what those crazy shots are. But many other parents came around, and Sherry is proud of her mom's part in that. In the letter Sherry wrote, she said, to be honest, as a child, who knew? Rather, I'd like to think the real pioneers in this program were the parents who so valiantly offered their little children for the experimental trials. We should remember their courage. Contrary to what I thought when I was six that my mother and dad didn't love me because they let me get polio shots, I realized when I got older that they really did love me because they didn't want me and my whole generation of kids to be getting polio. But I didn't think of that when I was getting those needles. Yeah. I have a lot of things in, my, in my, my life to be proud of, but I don't know anything I would be more proud of than being a polio pioneer. Thanks for listening. This story first appeared in the August 2005 issue of Pitt Med Magazine, 
you can find it on our website, pitmed.health.pit.edu. That's pit with two T's. Written by yours truly, Elaine Vitone. Production by Janine Faust, Margaret Palco, and myself, with additional research by Elena Zakos and Louisa Garbowit. Our executive producer is Pit Med Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Erica Lloyd. Pit Med is published by the University of Pittsburgh Office of University Communications and School of Medicine. Sound effects by freesound.org. Special thanks to Pitt alumna Cassie Nesper, curator of the Melnick Medical Museum and University Archives at Youngstown State University, for firing up their refurbished Emerson Iron Lung for this podcast. Thanks also to my kids, Lena, August, and Walker. By the way, no children were harmed in the making of this podcast. Archival audio from old-time radio downloads and old radio world. Contemporary news clips by NPR's All Things Considered. Music by Chad Crouch, Chris Zabriskie, Vortex, and the Pit Band. <laughs>